Dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciousness have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. This is God's word. All right. Thanks, Joy. And uh, I'll simply add to that, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And just a quick note over to you, Luke. My little uh, remote thing on my phone isn't working. So uh, there will be, just, just take a wild guess at when my two pictures might belong up there, and we'll see what happens. Okay. So when I, uh, when I first Googled the text of this evening's sermon, which I, I do sometimes to copy and paste it into uh, the document that our reader would read, one of the top websites that popped up uh, said, this is uh, typically known as the pastor's favorite verse. Um, and uh, and it's, I just want to say it's not my favorite verse, okay? Um, I, I, I haven't really done the favorite verse thing. But right now, if I had to pick... I would pick 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Um, but truthfully, that my favorite verse and this verse uh, have a correlation because I think understanding what Christ has done, what John was just talking to the kids about, um, leads us to our topic this evening of why we should go to church, or would, why would we? Um, but why is this the, uh, the quote-unquote pastor's favorite verse these days? The, the answer is because uh, the numbers, the data shows that gathering for worship is on the decline. This is just, this is just a fact. Um, in, I was last, last Sunday, I was in Detroit, and we went to a Tigers game, and one of the big features of downtown Detroit are the, uh, the big, empty Gothic churches. Um, the beautiful, the beautiful churches. We we stepped inside one. This was Sunday, um, and you could just walk around. and Michaela sang a little bit, and nobody's there, and it's like a tourist attraction. And they had a sign outside that said "Pray here for the tigers." Um, there's other ones. Uh, this one I think actually does have people who meet there from time to time, but there are many that are just flat out empty. Um, it's it's a thing. Uh, many of our, our churches, even in Tucson, we're, uh, were connected to a denomination. And for some time, all of those denominations' churches had closed. And so since uh, we're the only official one um, left, Eric over here is unofficial, but, you know, part of it. Um, churches, are, churches are closing. People don't go to church as much. I'm reading uh, the biography of Tim Keller by Colin Hansen. And the church that he started back in the, or went to back in the 70s, used to have a service Sunday morning and used to have a service with full preaching and worship Sunday night. And then he led another service midweek in which they also expected a sermon uh, from him. He would preach three times a week. Um, and that means, yeah, that, that some of those people in that small town were accustomed to not only you know, doing this, 
but doing it again after lunch, right? And then doing it again midweek. Um, did any of you grow up doing that? I'm curious. A few of you. I did. Um, I grew up doing that. Um, but when I did, it was rare. And in this part of the country, I, I knew very few friends that had that experience. It was definitely dwindling. Uh, recent studies show that church attendance is lower than ever uh, in our context. And by that, I don't mean America or Tucson. Actually, the data says that people who profess to be Christians um, don't go to church very often. Um, Carrie Newhoff cites a survey that suggests that nearly a third of churchgoers go once or twice uh, in a month. And a cursory look at our numbers at our church is that it's even less frequent. Um, somewhere between a quarter to half of us who are on the rolls are here on a given Sunday. And I don't bring this up to lay it on. It's, this is just a fact. It's just true. This is a change within Christian circles. And there's probably a lot of reasons. That particular article that I read listed 10. Um, greater affluence. We're more wealthy than we've ever been. Um, with that comes a lot of options. You have, you have more things you can do with your time. Um, two, the, there's a, a lot higher tendency for families to have their kids in various activities. A lot of those happen over the weekend. Um, three, people travel far more than ever before. Look, I wasn't here last week, right? Why? Traveling. Um, there's a rise of broken homes, and the dynamic within a broken home leads to not being as committed to kind of the typical institutions. Um, when, you, when you split time with, with your kids, you usually want to make sure you're with them. You, you often do less things, like going to church together. Um, then there's the online options. Uh, any of you, uh, thank you for being here, because you all could have gone and listened to a far better preacher and listened to even as good as Mike is. You could have listened to probably far better music. So you could have found your favorite, right, online, and you could have just done that. Um, number six, culturally, it's not an expectation. Um, some of us, we used to, we used, you know, used to go to church because you're kind of expected to. Um, you're not anymore, generally. Um, number seven, um, we're looking for individualized uh, religious experiences, by and large. Um, few people say, I, wa I want to be in the, in the stream or tradition I grew up in. You're looking, people are looking for individualized um, experiences. Many people in surveys have said, I just don't feel it's beneficial to me. I go, I don't feel better. It doesn't make my week better, so I don't go. Um, ninth, and we've observed this, and there's a real tension here, um, people are, tend to be more likely to show up if they have a role to play that week. Um, but also, people are very busy. Like, time off is often frantic time, and so to take on volunteer opportunities can feel like a burden. And 10th, and really behind it all, is that our, our culture is simply changing, and church-going feels like it's kind of part of the past. And I think some people are becoming very curious again. Some of you are, are doing that. But in general, being part of a body of people that are committed to each other, because they have a, a shared set of supernatural principles is just less common. It just is. So, because of all these facts, Hebrews 10 has become Dwight Schrute's favorite Bible verse. Dwight Schrute. Oh, Rain Wilson is his name, right? Dwight Schrute in the office. Um, Dwight Schrute, Rain Wilson, is not a Christian. Um, he's Baha'i, 
But he has taken to leading um, in our day. Uh, this, this new book, We Need a Sp- Soul Boom, We Need a Spiritual Revolution. Um, he, he's calling for people to go to church. Isn't that interesting? Um, he, he talks about in here that in his thesis is we need founding spiritual practices. He even says it's good if you go to different religions than the one he goes to. Um, and he even goes for far enough, he goes so far as to say it's not enough to just have spiritual beliefs. You actually need spiritual practices that are shared in a community of people. Uh, he was interviewed by Russ Moore, Russell Moore of Christianity Today. And he was very explicit on saying Christians, when they gathered together, have changed the world. They've been one of the most powerful forces in the world, and it was because they were formed and shaped by meeting together. Um, his Baha'i faith believes that all religions are like, like lamps shining, shining a moral light of wisdom and guidance. And Russell Moore casually at the end of their interview said essentially, I agree with you. The only difference I would say is I believe Jesus is the true light. And what he was inviting him to consider is what if the practices, what if the communal gathering were shaped not just by moral light, but by sacrificial love and grace? So even Dwight Schrute knows we need to go to church. But the question is for what? Why? To become better moral agents? Or is it more than that? Here's what I, I just want to show you good, the good, better, and best reasons to go to church, in my opinion. Um, I, I'm going to admit to you, going to church is a very weak way of saying it. Um, it's uh, it's kind of like go to school. And you might think, why? I can learn more online. I don't like school. Um, or like you really need to go to family dinner. But, but it's always awkward at family dinner. I don't want to go to family dinner. Uh, go to church feels like just a little lecture, right? Um, It's a weak term, Um, but something like committing to God's gathering um, or um, committing to the invitation of God is probably stronger, but but look, I'm just going to keep saying go to church, and and can you just understand I mean more than that? So here's a good reason. Why why go to church? A good reason. Because it's it's a pastor's favorite verse. I told you it's not mine, but maybe I wish it was yours. Here's what I'm saying. It's your pastors and leaders' favorite verse. Why is it? Because we work really hard to do this. Um, we've made this our lives work, and, we, and we're doing it for you. Um, we feel that God's given us this ministry as a calling, but it's not, it's not our calling. It's one we sense for you. Um, when I preach, I'm trying to connect with, with you. Um, when we use songs that lift our hearts to cry to God, we, we do it for, for all of us. We want to hear your voices. We want these to be shared prayers and ideals that are stuck in your head. Um, we stay here into the night to connect with each other so that you have a space to work out your thoughts and questions. We plan for this during the week. The elders pray for you. We constantly reflect on how to do this faithfully and effectively and how to get you out into the community and active because we care about you. Now, sometimes we get it wrong, and we pick the wrong pathway, and sometimes we work on the wrong elements. Um, Sometimes we make it too much about the show. Sometimes we neglect details that would really help you out. But at the end of the day, if we were doing it with more of you, it would be better, and we feel that. 
I've shared this before, but this is not a place, right? It's a place filled with us and your presence and a healthy exchange of loving feedback makes this place great. Not that you can't make it miserable. You have that power as well. Um, But you can make it great. The simple truth is, think about this place. Let's just be really just practical, nuts and bolts. There are 150 people on our rolls. Imagine if if you were all here. Just imagine it. Just imagine the joy you'd feel with every seat full, how the singing would fill the room, how the meal and nursery times would be so full of volunteers. More of your friends would be here this week, and you'd be here for them. The church would be more diverse. It would cause some problems, but the right kind of problems, the kind that come from abundance and not scarcity. Um, I know we're busy. I know we're all busy. But here's the thing. We're busy worshiping something. Um, Think about it. What do we do with our time? We run to what we love or think will deliver us. We we run to what we love or think will deliver us. I think I'd be delivered by um, staying online. I think I'd be delivered by making more money. We run, we're worshiping. We're always worshiping. If this is your church and you worship Jesus, you should be here. Whenever you're able. And when you leave town, go to church there. When you're on sabbatical, go to church with your friends, like Eric. Um, Encourage and experience your brothers and sisters. So, okay, that's a good reason. That's like the should statement from this scripture. The scripture says, don't neglect our meeting together as some do, right? Um, That's the should. You should. Everybody would really appreciate it. The book of Hebrews, though, is really kind of a sermon to Jewish folks. It's a sweeping explanation of the role of Jesus in God's grand plan for all time. And this scripture is just toward the end of it. Um, And the part I I quoted is really a small part. It's just the end of the idea. The should statement's just good. It kind of gets tacked on. Now, you really should. But the better reason follows it, follows the should. Because it turns the should toward other people. Did you notice when I listed the the reasons out of the article that people don't go to church, um, there was something missing. The reasons were all aimed at yourself. You know, what I want, what's comfortable for me, what I get out of it, that I feel involved, that I feel important. They were all me-centered. Saying you should go to church doesn't really get to the motives that ought to compel us. A better reason is because the more often we're here, the better we'll be at our shared calling to encourage one another and witness to Jesus. And that's also in this evening's text, right after the should. I'll read this part again. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. We're wanting to motivate each other to acts of love and good works. And then it says, let us not neglect our meeting together as some do, but encourage one another. That word, this is the Greek word parakaleo, and it gets at the idea of urging someone to change their life. 
urging somebody to anchor their hope in what they should anchor it in, urging somebody to be who they want to be. And to do that kind of encouraging, we have to be present in each other's lives on the regular. I don't do a whole lot of this you know, Greek word parsing here, but this, is, this word is in the present active, meaning it's an ongoing and steady action, this encouraging. It's not a one-time thing. Even the tense of the word shows us it's an ongoing action. To really encourage, you have to know beyond the small talk. To really encourage, you have to be shaped deeply by the faith and know others well enough to know how they are wrestling. So you've got to be with people and with them often and with them outside of church. We've got to do life together. I see many of us doing this, by the way. It really is encouraging. You know, I can't go to Crave Coffee without seeing one of you. Um, and that's great. Danielle, saw Julia, hey, saw you yesterday, right? Um, hanging out together, that is wonderful, and I do see it. Um, Jared and I, this past week, did some life together. We did way more than a week together. And maybe it was a bit too much, right? But look, um, anytime you get a coffee with someone, you're moving toward the better. Anytime you serve with other people, you're moving toward the better because you get to know them more. Do one of the trips we do, like going to Mexico or a project or a study together, you will exponentially learn to know this person more. And that can be amazing. It can be really sweet. But it can also be a real hassle. Because when you get to the level of being able to encourage, you're also getting to the level of seeing the truth. I remember as a new pastor, um, I went to the store with one of our early church attendees, and he got cut off in traffic, and whoo, he, he didn't do so well in that situation. And, I, and then I think he realized the pastor was in the car. Um, the more you're with somebody, right? You start to see the, the ways we are. Um, if you went with me to Louisiana on that trip, um, you got to know me better. You got to know a few things, right? There's Jared learned more about me in, in Michigan. Doing life together is risky, but to get to where we can truly encourage one another, it is a must. And you know what's the hardest thing? This, it's like what poem, uh, her question it doesn't always work when you encourage others, right? It doesn't always work. The encouragement we offer won't always be well-received. Sometimes it's because we're not good at encouraging. Sometimes it's because people aren't ready. But at the core of this, encouragement takes time. It's a present, active word. It takes time. Think about Jesus with his disciples. How many times have we talked about this over the last several years? These guys spent three years with the Son of God, and they still didn't understand. If Jesus, God in the flesh, needed three years at least with people, it's going to take some time, right? So a good reason is you should. Look, it's in the Ten Commandments. Keep the Sabbath. I forgot to even mention that one, right? Hebrews reiterates it. God's people in the Old and New Testament always practice gathering together on a weekly basis. Tim Keller went three times a week, and it's the pastor's favorite verse. You should go, right? There you go. But better, it's a movement toward your brothers and sisters. It's a key way to know and encourage others in the faith. 
Um, we try to do church in such a way that you can um, know and encourage others if you get involved because we spend more time together. So that's a better reason, but there's a better reason than that. The, the better reason than that, the best reason, takes up the entirety of the book of Hebrews. Um, but it's also summed up in the beginning of this passage we read. The best reason, I would succinctly say, is that God meets us here and shapes our hearts for his mission when we get together. And this gets at the core of our desire and purpose. Um, wouldn't we want to invest in that? Even, even Rain Wilson's book, Soul Boom, he, he actually takes a very similar approach to like a Tim Keller, the way that Tim Keller would talk, if you ever followed after him, is he would say, you know you want to be a better person. You do. No, how many people do you meet? They're like, I want to be the most awful version of myself. I'd like everyone to hate me. I'd really like to be miserable my whole life and just be detested. No, most people want to be a, they want to be a better person. They wish they could break their habits and so on and so forth. We do want these things. Um, people want to live for higher purposes. And so what do you do to, to invest in that, right? We, we want to tap into these things. So how do we do it? How do we, how do we go after those things when persevering in it doesn't feel effective? How, does it, how do we go after these things when we have this sense in us that we want to worship other things, that we want to run to the other things that we love? How do we stay committed to it and not neglect it? You know, what's the core of the reason we should worship and worship together? Let's take a look at the opening of our passage. It opened this way. Dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and, live, and live, life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. How do we hold tightly to our hope? How do we seek to motivate and encourage one another? This scripture says you gather together. But you'll never commit to the should, at least not for the right reasons, until you are shaped by the gospel. And what I mean by this, by gospel, is the good news explained and applied and exhibited. We can enter into heaven's most holy place through the curtain because Jesus died to make our guilty conscience clean. Now, you might be thinking, okay, this just got really, like, abstract. What's with all the holy stuff and blood and sprinkling? This was so simple, Andy. You were just telling us to go to church, and we were actually starting to buy it. We were actually starting to feel a little bad and a little bit like, maybe I should do this for other people. And I was thinking I needed to encourage others, but now it just got really murky with all this blood garbage. Well, this complicated stuff is the key to the why and the how. 
And so you're going to have to forgive me for the lightning round you're about to endure, because the book of Hebrews is long, and it's just trying to tell the story of the Bible. When does going to church first show up in the Bible? That's a good question. There's a creation ordinance at the very beginning that says that you should have a Sabbath, a weekly time of rest in the presence of God. And church, the word we use for church means the gathering of God's people. So the question would be, when did God gather his people and where? And the answer to that is it's in the garden. We see this from the very beginning, and scholars rightfully see the parallel between the garden and the tabernacle and the temple and the church. The garden was not the whole world. It was a location in the world. It was a place where God's people met, fed on the word of, and walked with God, where he spoke to them face to face, where he provided for them the tree of eternal life and the water of life, where they were shaped for their mission to go out into the world to fill the earth and subdue it, to fill the earth with people, to fill it with creative action, and to govern over it in wisdom. The garden was literally the most holy place. And later, when God's people would build a temple, you'd see garden images in the temple. Go read the descriptions of what the artists did, and you'll see it hearkening back to the garden, engravings of fruits and plants and the tree of life and the water and the basin. They would wash to re-enter the presence of God and to taste of his presence again. But something else happened in the garden, and it happens in the church. The gardens where the temptation occurred, the temptation to take control, to have autonomy, to distrust the way God instructed the people, to start making accusations against God as not having their best interest in mind, and to make accusations against each other. You're the one. It's your fault. And to take over themselves, to put themselves at the center, which is at the core, the root of something we call idolatry. And the people in the garden fell into temptation, which was a fall from trusting in his grace, and then they turned on each other. Grace is God's undeserved love and favor. It places God at the center of the human experience. He's the giver, and we receive. He's the one feeding, and we eat. He's the one giving us drink, and we thirst no more. And they had it. And a proper response is to receive that and to obey out of a deep trust in the goodness of God. Adam and Eve desired, though, to have something else. And they came out from under grace and wanted to be like God themselves, to know what he knows, to run their own lives. You can't be in the garden where God is at the center when God isn't the center anymore. So they were banished. But like serpents, these temptations are always slithering through and into the church. And they manifest in two ways. One is rebellious disobedience that says, I know best. The other is self-righteousness, which said it's, says it's not my fault, it's theirs. And they're two sides of the same coin because the self is at the center. 
After the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, God promised a son to crush the head of the serpent. That's in Genesis 3.15, the emblem of their tempter. And while they waited, they were still called to worship and gather, but they couldn't be in the most holy place anymore. Early in the scriptures, you see the father as the priest over his home, making altars to atone for the sins of his family, following after the pattern in the garden and the command to, to rest and Sabbath every week. When God sacrificed an innocent animal to cover their shame in the garden, it gave them a pattern for sacrificing an animal to cover the shame of their families. After all the miraculous deliverance from Egypt, people, the people were called to worship and gather in a tabernacle or a tent. And in the middle of the tent, there was a presence, the presence of God behind the curtain, accessible only by a priest after their purification. And that priest mediated between God and the people weekly and yearly on the Day of Atonement. And they gathered to get forgiveness of their sins for every imperfect thing they did, whether on purpose or on accident. Later in the kingdom of Israel, when they had a homeland, they built, they built a temple. And it was patterned after creation as well, with the presence of God in the center and a curtain symbolizing that they could not access the holy place if they were not clean. And the priests would take the words and the grace of God out to the people. And there was space for people of all nations to gather and listen and watch the wisdom and the mercy of God. But the priests were often as bad as the people they served, for they were simply people. The Bible is full of, at best, flawed and at worst, crooked priests, which is one reason the Bible doesn't come off like one of those faux religious books. It never glosses over the brokenness. Now, Jesus was the son promised in the garden. God come down, the God who walked in the garden. The apostle John says Jesus lived in a body like a tent. He pitched his tent among us, clearly connecting him to the tabernacle and who hated him the most? The priests. The church, you see, is a contested space. It's where God has called us together for worship, but it's where the tempter is at work the most. And this is why it's so complicated. And there are always going to be hypocrites. It's where we struggle with trusting God it's where we struggle with accusing one another. It's part of why it's so easy not to go. It demands a lot out of us. It doesn't always feel good. The people in it are a mess. But Jesus shows up. Because he loves it. I have an all too real and contemporary illustration from this week. Jared and I were just at a denominational synod. It's called a, a yearly gathering of a larger body of the church where decisions are made, and it was a contested space. It was a body of the church. It was the leaders of the church. There were people who, there who had chosen to eat certain fruit. They had struggled with a particular command of God. They'd wrestled with it. They had steadfastly decided to hold on to it, and the broader church made a determination that they'd sinned. This had taken years. 
It was investigated by a committee. The actions were verified by many. The vast majority of the people in the room saw the facts on paper and made a vote that they were wrong. And there were those who rightly wanted to seek justice. And at some point, you can't be part of an institution and go against its core principles, right? You can't be in the holy place when God isn't number one. You can't be in Mothers Against Drunk Driving and drink when you drive home. You can't do the thing the organization has decided not to do, right? It's not right. It's not honest. But here's the trouble. When you seek to bring justice, you can forget to love mercy, and you can become self-righteous. Remember, it's the flip side of the same coin. Self-righteousness defies the truth that none are righteous, no, not one. It rebels against God's path to being righteous, which is being washed of your sin, being atoned for. In that ancient garden, God said, don't eat the fruit or you'll surely die. Both parties in the garden ate and were judged guilty, but the God who judged them guilty found them in the garden and slayed an innocent animal and clothed them in innocence. When Jesus came to earth, the religious people thought he too was soft on morality and hard on hypocrisy. And look, many unbelievers were just plain disinterested in following him or turning from their forbidden fruit. The priests of the secular Romans, or the priests and the secular Romans crucified him together. They colluded to do it. He was a problem in the Roman province. He was a problem in the church, and Jesus prayed, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing over all of them. And then he died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And when he rose from the dead, crushing the head of the tempter and defeating the death we deserve, he sent his disciples out to preach the gospel, the good news that Christ died for sinners. As the apostle Paul said, Christ died for sinners and I am the chief. The aim of the church is to shape people according to the gospel. And I'm not just saying teaching the gospel facts, the movements of the church, the words, the habits, the regular praise, confession, baptism, the Lord's Supper, are meant to conform our lives so that our living looks like what Jesus did for us. And we need a weekly reminder to rest in him. Well, the meetings got really ugly in Michigan. The committee had tried to convince people to repent and change their behavior, but they didn't think they were actually wrong. So what do you do? At some point, you have to discipline. Emotions were high, the room was pulsing with tension and hurt and anger and anxiety. And if you know what I'm talking about, the meeting, and you watch a video or you read an article, you will not have a clue how it felt in the room. The motion passed by a large margin. It was clear the discipline had to occur. And the next motion was to enforce the process requiring leaders to prove their repentance by a list of public declarations of guilt a series of them. But I'll tell you more was going on in that room. People were wrestling with their faith. Some were feeling condemned. Some were wanting to make sure this got done and got done now. We have to finish this. 
As people were speaking for and against the motions, the guilty were feeling the weight of being judged. There was a tension in the room, and the head of the committee that had found the parties guilty stepped up to the mic. I think those who were seeking justice were sure he was going to put the nail in the coffin. He was the head of the committee. He'd found them guilty. He knew what to say. Those who were found guilty, I think, were pretty sure he was going to seal their fate, but he did something else. He spoke against his own motion. He said, it was wrong. We've done enough to these people. They don't need to be punished anymore. And I heard one of the women behind him just say, thank you, in a faltering voice. She's thanking the one who found her guilty because he had a heart of mercy. Why did he have a heart of mercy? Because he had received mercy. Because he was shaped by the gospel and he learned it at church. He could hold truth and love and justice and mercy and tension. He could see what a person needed when discipline had gone far enough and when it was time for kindness. The church, my friends, is no perfect place. It's not a perfect people. I just told you a story of deep division in the church. It's, full, it's all over the news, right? The Baptists are dealing with it too. But Jesus can show up even in the middle of the struggle because he's inside of the people of the church, because it's his church, because he died for his church. So why come to church? To experience Jesus even in the mess, to be shaped by his grace and to learn to love him for his mercy. That was one of the most difficult meetings I've ever been a part of, but it was one of the most profound moments of grace I've ever experienced. It hearkens to the day that Adam and Eve sinned, and in the middle of that dark day, God covered their guilt. It hearkens to the day when we crucified Jesus, the darkest of days where he looked out over us and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Speaking of a mess of a meeting, Jesus gathers, gathered his disciples together before he was betrayed. And he took the bread that, from one of their holy feasts that they celebrated as a church and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. He took the wine from the table, wine that symbolized both judgment and celebration in their culture. And he said, this is the blood of a new promise I'm making to you poured out for the forgiveness of many. It was the night Judas would turn on the Son of God. It was the night Peter would struggle with receiving the servant love of Jesus. 
It's the night we remember and need to partake of all the time to remember who Jesus is and who we are and why we worship. I'm going to pray in just a moment and leave two minutes of silence after that. I do not want you to think about why you should go to church. I want you to think about Jesus and what he's done for you. We're going to do a few things the Christian church has always done. We're going to give in response to God's generosity to us. We're going to worship him in our giving because he's given us everything, and we want to give back to him. Um, We've got a giving station in the back. Mike's standing back by it right now if you don't know where it is. Um, And you can also inquire. There's cards back there if you want to serve or get involved more. By the way, I hope you're enjoying the air conditioning. It's good to have it back. Um, And we want to thank those who uh, installed it at a discounted rate and those who pitched in to make sure it could happen. And it seems to be blowing so hard it shakes our screen. That's that's what's going on. Um, We're going to sing together. We're going to consider these memorable prayers together, and we want to sing to the God who has given us everything. He's our creator. He's our grace giver, but he's also our savior. Um, And then we're going to come forward and receive the Lord's Supper. And who is this for? Who did Jesus die for? Those who get the law right? No. It's only for those who get it wrong All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and I am the chief. The body and blood of Christ are here for sinners. All you have to do is be able to see that that's you and that he has died for you, and you're included. And then you trust in his grace. Poem, your question was so good earlier. What if if we don't see it? What if we don't change? Well, that tells us more about our hearts We need to be confronted with grace to know who we really are. So face him, receive him by faith. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you so much for this church. It was so good for Jared and I to think about how much we missed this place, just being gone for a week. Um, You have done a beautiful thing here. And we're so glad. Jesus, I want to ask maybe over our future that you would maintain yourself as the center of this church, your gospel, your mercy, that we would never forget it. Correct us if we do. Jesus, transform our hearts by your grace. Teach us to follow after you because we love you more than life. Teach us to worship you and to seek your face. God, as we pray and come before you, reveal yourself to us. Apply your gospel to our hearts and hear our prayers.